So tonight I'd like to expand upon the theme that I began this morning about emotions and emotional life and bring that more to light, more to consciousness. Because it's usually about this time in the retreat that more starts to move for some people, not all people. Some people do feel more calm and still in themselves. And so I don't want to set up that at this stage of the retreat you should be feeling (laughs) more uh, emotions because that isn't what I'm implying. But sometimes we do as we get closer to our own being, to our own heart, we start to feel the deeper stirrings of our being. We may even have memories or some, yeah, some memories of things that have happened in the past that start to stir up things for us as well. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about how, how to bring the emotional life into our meditation. Oftentimes when people who don't know very much about meditation and also people in the beginning stages of their meditation can often relate the act of meditation to stillness. There's often this equation that if I'm meditating properly that I will feel quite still in my mind. There won't be very many thoughts. And I'll be quite still in my body. There won't be much movement or activity or much feeling. And that this is getting closer to what the teachings are about. And that this not only the stillness of the mind and the body in terms of its actual physical component, but that sense that when we talk about inner stillness, there can be that that thought that it means that nothing's moving within the being at all. It's absolutely still. And I know I've had these ideas myself that there's this way that one can come or I can come to complete stillness in that state of, of bliss where nothing's moving. Almost as if the mind isn't moving, then nothing else is moving. Like there's this big void. (laughs) You know, but of course, I think that you know that's a bit of an exaggerated idea of meditation. But to a certain extent, we may have some sense of this for ourselves, that we're trying to reach some kind of still point or some kind of stillness, either through the mind or the body. And then what can happen is this idea gets projected onto others. It gets projected onto other people on the retreat that um, everybody else has reached this still point but me. You know, everybody else has certainly uh, come to the point where their mind isn't moving and they're really settling into that silent stillness. But my mind's all over the place and chattering and running around and, and I'm the only one. That's not un- uncommon at all for that to happen. In fact, that's one of the good things that, about groups that not all teachers have. A lot of times they're just individual interviews on retreats. But in group interviews, you get to hear <laughs> that everybody else's mind is, is running all over the place and there's judgment and getting lost in thought and not being able to stay on the breath and 
you know, that that's a very typical experience. But we can still, nevertheless, think that there's some people <laughs> that much, must be reaching that point. It, maybe, maybe at least the teacher. You know, the teacher is sitting up here very still and very quiet and nothing's going on whatsoever, which isn't the way it is. <laughs> I can let you know that firsthand. And then, you know, when we, if we setting up, we're setting up this projection, then we get into comparing. The comparing mind can arise very strongly. Well, other people are doing it well. I'm not doing it well. I'm not really getting anywhere. Nothing's really happening. And uh, maybe I should just give up right now, you know. So there can be a strong tendency, if we have some of that going on, well, it'll be used to put ourselves down put somebody else up and put ourselves down. So we get, we'll get caught in that setup if we have that going on. So meditation can leave us with the impression that somehow we should be cooled out, you know, that if we really reach the high states of wisdom and understanding, we'll just be cooled out, detached, unaffected by life, <laughs> the movements of life. And I'm laughing a little bit because from where I sit, having done about 22 years of practice, I just know how absurd this is. It just has, seems to have very little to do with um, not being affected by life. In fact, it has more to do with meeting life in a way that we may never have imagined before, engaging and connecting with life so fully that there really is very little obstruction to that that the ways that we have held back and maybe defended ourselves and, and uh, just held, withdrew, those defenses can start to drop away and we can more easily meet life in its fullness and its joy and its, and its radiance. So I want to talk about where is the place of emotion and passion in Dharma teachings, because this is a question that often comes up in, in the tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, because, you know, we see these images of the Buddha sitting, you know, you know, completely still and serene, you know, nothing, no expression whatsoever on the Buddha's face. And in the, in the whole Buddhist tradition, it can set up this impression that that's the way we're supposed to sit and feel and be. And the question comes up a lot for people, then where is the place of passion and expression and, 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 and one's truth of expression? We talk of selflessness and letting go, selflessness and letting go. But what do we do when there's fear and jealousy and rage inside of us? Is that not dharmic? <laughs> Is somehow we're missing the boat or we're missing the point? Is there some way that this can be incorporated so that we can still consider ourselves on the path and that we haven't fallen off the path because we're experiencing rage? There was one person who came to one of my groups that said, if I'm centered, I won't have these strong reactions. 
I won't have all this fear and anger that I feel. And this is somebody in the workplace, somebody who goes to work and just feels all this fear and rage. He said to me, what can I do so this won't happen? And he was pleading to me to help him be more centered so he wouldn't have to experience this fear when he went to work. But what I said to him was, I think he's asking the wrong question. The question isn't, what can I do so this doesn't happen anymore? The question is, how can I allow my emotions to be there but not be overpowered by them, not be overwhelmed by them? Not annihilating that aspect of ourself, not, not deadening that aspect of ourselves, but learning how to be with those so that we don't feel out of control in the midst of those strong feelings and emotions. When I talk about emotions, I hope you understand what I'm referring to because this morning I was talking about that that distinction between the thoughts that arise in the mind, the stories that come about in our minds, and the physical component in our bodies, the bodily experience that arises when we have a strong emotion of anger or sadness, hurt, jealousy, anxiety, excitement, happiness. There's usually a storyline, some kind of story associated with that. And then there's the whole physical movement in the body. We, like I said, we feel our, our heart beating or a stomach tightening or our face getting hot or, or the energy starting to run through our body in a way we haven't felt it before, the pulsating in our bodies. These waves, these ripples in the mind and the body are the emotions. And each one has their own nature. They, each one has their own personality, which seems quite independent of what I bring to it. There are the difficult ones that are painful in their subtlety, but blinding in their intensity. There are the pleasant emotions that are quite soothing and calming in their subtlety, but can also be quite overwhelming in their intensity, like bliss or excitement or joy can be very overwhelming. There can be, in the category of fear, there can be very mild anxiety or restlessness, just very, very mild restlessness that we feel. But as it gets more and more and more intense, as it goes along the continuum, we may find that we are lying catatonic on the sofa and we can't move. It can be so strong in our bodies that it is uh, debilitating. This is fear, has that power. Or anger, which can be in the most mild form, just irritation. We all know that. Just feel that little irritation. But as it gets more and more intense along the continuum, we feel rage and it's blinding in the mind, and it can give rise to very heedless and hurtful actions. It has these, these, these personalities, each one of them do. So 
So if we allow them in, because the emotions are obviously quite natural, they have their place, they are appropriate in our human nature, if we allow them in, doesn't it mean that to allow them in might mean to give that full expression to that emotion? If we really allow ourselves to feel it, maybe we will have to express that rage or that, that, um, that, 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 that the deep despair or the sadness that we feel, and we risk being overwhelmed. They seem like they're such strong forces. So is this expression the way to release? Is the expression the way to freedom? from these emotions? Is, there, is it like we can uh, let them come up and let them go out and then they're gone? <laughs> sort of like a, a mechanistic view, you know, like they're a thing, a thing in us that they, they actually rise in us they, and, and then they can be dumped and then they're gone. <laughs> is it something like that? But I don't think it is. I don't think that expression that allowing of that expression is necessarily the way to freedom. And I want to just tell a little story about um, <coughs> in the early 1980s. Again, it's about Manindraji, this teacher who I mentioned the other night, who's the teacher of Deepama, the woman I spoke of. Manindraji, the little cal- man from Calcutta, came to San Francisco, California, where I was living. And just so happened that it was the early 80s, they were playing a movie at the theater about uh, what was going on in uh, Bhagwan Rajneesh's ashram in Pune in the early 80s. And it was a, kind of a, a documentary. And the, we, he really wanted to see this because he, he really wanted to find out what was going on in Rajneesh's ashram. <laughs> and so a bunch of us, Went, got, got together in car and drove off with Manindraji to the movies. And in the film, what they were showing was actual footage of a lot of what was going on in the workshops. And at the time, Bhagwan was really encouraging people to express, to express, to just let it, let it all out. Whatever you felt, whatever was coming up, just let it, let it come out and, and express it. Don't hold anything back. You know, don't, don't put censor on any part of your being and your personality. And so what was happening was that they would show uh, footage of perhaps some people in a circle in a workshop, and somebody started feeling really angry at somebody, so they got up and started beating the person up, you know, and really starting to hurt this person. And another person was feeling angry about that and started beating that person up. And it was sort of like everybody just got into a big, <laughs> big uh, fighting match. And then people started feeling, one person started feeling some sexual lust towards another person. So went over that person started expressing all this lust that they were feeling for this person. And it was really a bit like a circus. <laughs> you know, just like ex- these, these expressions of emotions that have their own personality. It was like the personalities of these emotions just taking form, taking manifest, and just becoming those people 
lust, <laughs> anger, rage, fear, people hiding in the corner with blankets over them, you know, just <laughs> complete manifestations. Well, Manindraji, being the Theravadan Buddhist teacher of the Middle Way that he is, was horrified. <laughs> horrified. And he, it was only about an hour long, and he was walking out of the movie just shaking his head. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. That is not the way to freedom. No, 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 no. <laughs> and he was just, just he, he's a man who has a lot to say, a lot of words. And so he gave us many, many discourses at that point on the middle way, on the way <laughs> to, to skillful ways to work with these powerful forces within ourselves so that we're not reinforcing and strengthening these difficult patterns of mind and we're not causing more harm to ourselves, to our own minds, bodies, and not causing harm to other people through these very difficult forces that arise. It was such a good teaching for us because at that time in the early 80s, you know, we didn't know. You know, there was a lot of, particularly in California, there was a lot of experiment, experimenting going on. It's like, what is the way? What is the way to freedom? What is the way to feel that fullness of your being, the potential of your being? And so there was a lot of, even where, where I was living in the groups I was participating in in San Francisco, there was experiment, experimentation with that kind of expression. When you feel angry, you yell and scream at the person. <laughs> You know, and um, I think that what we all discovered, you know, within the next five or six years or so, doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. And then I, I don't really see much of that going on now, particularly in the spiritual groups and spiritual circles. What we're interested in is an awareness that leads to self-understanding. A self-understanding that weakens the patterns of anger, holding, and confusion. This is the, these are what the teachings are pointing to. Anything that will support this weakening, this weakening of this structure, the structure within us that seems so much to be held together by these forces of anger or aversion or ill will, forces of, of greed, desire, holding, attachment, and the forces of confusion, or ignorance, or delusion. This is what the teachings are pointing to. How can we weaken these structures within our being so that we are not bound by them? We're not controlled by them. But we can discover something else within our being that is more true. So what is the middle way? The middle way. The middle way being when we're not caught in the extremes. We're not caught in one extreme or another extreme. What is the middle way? And this is what the Buddha taught. The middle way in working with our emotional life, and there's the middle way with everything within our experience, but right now I'm talking about the emotional life, one extreme would be suppressing. 
pushing away, denying, ignoring, pretending it's not there, pushing it out of consciousness. So one extreme is suppressing, and the other extreme is the indulging, like what was happening at at the ashram, expressing, acting out, dwelling, making more of something than it actually is. So you have the suppression on the one hand and the indulging on the other hand. And the middle way is neither the suppression, neither ignoring, and neither indulging. Hmm? Not getting caught in either one of those extremes. So not suppressing. I think we have a sense of what it means not to suppress, not to to ignore or pretend or deny that something isn't there. When something's knocking at the door, to listen to it, to pay attention, to open to it, to, to welcome that into our consciousness, into our awareness. Not indulging. What does that mean? Because that's a little trickier. What does it mean not to indulge in our experience? I think what we could see here at, in our own meditation is that indulging is a form of dwelling. It's when we get caught in the story and we get, we get seduced into the storyline and we dwell over it again and again and again. We're indulging in that story. We're indulging in that memory, in that past event, or in our future fantasy. It's a kind of indulgence. And the more that we do that, it's like putting wood on the fire of our emotions because the more we indulge, as I was talking this morning, if I'm thinking about something that was quite disturbing and I feel the beginning of those waves of irritation and I keep thinking about it and thinking about it, all of a sudden that irritation is growing and expanding and now I'm feeling angry and I keep thinking about it and thinking about it and then it turns into rage. I just want to kill that person. That's indulging. That's what happens. Like the more that I think about something, it's like putting fuel on the fire and the fire burns bigger and hotter and bigger and hotter. And we can feel this in our being. We can feel the heat growing within ourselves. Thoughts of jealousy, a thought of, a, of my partner just having a conversation with another woman. Mm-hmm. Then I say, oh, let's just play that one out a little more, play it out, and then feeling the jealousy starting to churn in my body. Oh, just oh, Let me just find out what happens at the end of that story. <laughs> just, you know, burning and ready to kill both of them, you know? Just so easy to see how that starts to grow inside. That's indulging. The Buddha says, don't indulge. (laughs) It's not skillful. It's not helpful. Not only through our thoughts can we indulge, but we can indulge through our actions, acting out, acting out our, our emotions or acting out our expressions when we're angry at somebody without much awareness, without much thought, just going and telling that person everything that's on our mind without really maybe taking some time to consider whether that's useful, whether it's helpful, whether it's sensitive. Taking a little time to be conscious about that. 
Because when we act out, we can cause harm to ourselves and to others. Acting out around food, acting out around sex, acting out around other addictions. It's indulgence. And it often comes about without much awareness, without much consciousness. And the more that we can bring that conscious attention, we can begin to weaken that pattern, stop that pattern. With actions, it's much more difficult because that means it's the, the intensity of that force has already moved the body. First, the force just moves the ripples in the mind. We have thoughts about it. And then the force goes into our speech. And then the speech goes into the body and our actions. And when it goes that far, it's already harder to pull back. If we can catch the ripples, the rising of the emotion, of the intensity of the force in the thought, it's easier to check that, to work with it, before it moves deeper into the body, into the speech, into the actions. Because once it's in speech and actions, we really can do a lot of damage both to ourselves and to others. Another reason why it's so important to be mindful, to be mindful of our thoughts, because we can catch the seeds of those uh, forces arising before they get too strong, before they have a chance to overpower or overwhelm consciousness. We can see it all right there, right? It's a minute little thought that starts to arise in the mind. So not suppressing, not dwelling. Finding that place in the middle. So how might we apply the middle way in our practice? How might we actually manifest that in working with our emotions? I started talking about that this morning in the instructions. The first thing we have to do is start with awareness. Start with mindfulness. Because without mindfulness, there's not a lot that can happen. There has to be the knowing of what's going on before we can start to work with a strong pattern in ourselves. With awareness, we can acknowledge what is happening. We can say, yes, I am feeling sad. I am feeling grief. I'm feeling jealous. And this acknowledgement is a very important first step to make some, perhaps make some sense of what's actually occurring in us. Naming it is, is wonderful bringing a name to what we're experiencing in ourselves. I feel irritated. I feel happy. I feel excited. Starting to name that starts to touch the actual experience itself. It brings us more into the fullness of that experience in our being. And then the second thing is to notice if we're generating any story. Noticing what is actually happening at the level of thought. Because when we do that, then we're able to see the relationship between the thinking and the feeling in the body, the physical component in the body, 
It's very helpful to be able to distinguish between the thought and the feeling. Because the thought is where we spin out. The thought is where we indulge, where we dwell, where we get caught in that whole train of association. That's what needs to be watched. That's where the building or the constructing happens in the thought. And then if we can notice that, we can perhaps, with some discipline, disengage from that thought and turn the attention into the sensation itself. Come into the body. What am I feeling? What is happening? What's happening in the stomach, in the heart, in the shoulders, in the face? Really bringing that attention down into the body, which then grounds us. It brings us down into the body on this earth, <laughs> rather than just spinning in our heads. And when we spin in our heads, we, just, we lose our balance. We lose our center. And coming down into the fullness of our body helps us center in the experience that's happening. Transformation comes when we can separate our thoughts about what's happening from the bare experience of what's happening. Knowing the difference between our thoughts about how we're embellishing our experience, how we're painting our experience in our imagination, and what's the reality? What's the present moment reality? Oh, I'm just feeling some tightness in my stomach. I'm feeling some contraction in my heart. I'm feeling heat in my face. I'm feeling tightness in my throat. That's the momentary experience. Knowing the difference between when we're thinking about something and what we're feeling in the moment. Without knowing the difference, our imaginary thoughts can think of emotions as real entities. Real entities that we must fear, that we have to push away, that we have to guard ourselves again. And it can reinforce that idea that those emotions are more powerful than I am, than we are, because they become things. The anger is like a monster that's living down underneath my stomach and I have to keep him down there or I'm going to be in trouble. With mindfulness of what's real and what's imaginary, we can catch these distortions in our perception. It's quite remarkable what we can start to see, what we can start to perceive, our minds making up and imagining when we really pay attention. We see that what's happening is there are thoughts and there are feelings. And we don't have to build this scenario up to be so fantasyful, so imaginary, but we have to see that we're doing it. We see these emotions for what they are, passing moods, feelings, not solid. They change, they come and they go. And it's possible to cultivate this patient acceptance with our experience, to really make friends with all of this when we're not so afraid, when we're not so frightened. 
when we we take uh, take some time and actually hang out with our emotions, get to know them, make friends with them. I wanted to read this um, email that a friend sent uh, a, a little while ago. It's a really about this making friends. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a metaphor. He was taking a trip. He was taking a trip around Colorado in America. I wonder if Donna told you about our Denver escapade when the fuel pump on the Taurus gave out as we were starting west on I-90. The person who came to tow us to a service station offered to let us camp in his garden. Ever keen to meet people and to accept offers of generosity, I said that would be perfect. Accordingly, we arrived at his house. He had confirmed with his wife that she was okay with this offer. To find a home of most amazing apparent chaos. Everywhere, the roads on two sides filled with campers, tow trucks, other vehicles in various states of disrepair, the two garages filled with all kinds of mechanical bits and pieces, the veranda half used as an overflow for household items, the kitchen with all counters 18 inches deep in utensils and a myriad other objects, the bathroom, which seemed to be no one's obligation to clean, and so on and so on. My overriding feeling about where we found ourselves, how utterly incredible that anyone could be so unselfconscious as to invite strangers back to such a home which social conditioning would generally deem in an, an incredible mess. This surely is generosity in the extreme. (laughs) When I read that, what it touched in me was, can we have that same level of generosity with our own incredible chaos and mess? Can we just invite ourselves in, invite people in and say, yeah, it's just a mess here. (laughs) Doesn't really matter. You know, I want to, I want you to come and join me anyhow. Everything's in chaos. You know, I haven't cleaned anything for, you know, 15 years and uh, uh, it might smell bad. (laughs) But I, you know, come on, come in. Hmm? That level of unselfconsciousness that level of generosity that we can actually give to ourselves. Because in, this, in a way, that description could be the description for any of us <laughs> and the way that we feel about our own home right here where we live. You know, chaos, disrepair, unkempt. <laughs> but so what? That to me is truly making friends with. Not being ashamed. Not hiding behind closed doors. Just saying, okay, this is how it is. (laughs) That unabashed. 
but then of course to honor the times that we can't invite them in you know there's times that we are overwhelmed and we are embarrassed we do feel shame we do feel we've hit our limit and we can't let anybody in we can't really even let ourselves in and we do just have to curl up in a ball we do have to just push the whole world out and feel the depths of our despair and maybe not even feel the depths of our despair (laughs) just turn off shut out turn on the TV or do something that we don't really like ourselves for when we do, you know, eat too much food or go smoke a cigarette or drink too much or whatever it is. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes that's all we can do. The only way we can cope, we've reached our limit. Can we make that okay too? Can we not give ourselves a hard time and make ourselves wrong and pile up a whole nother level of junk on top of that, of more anger and more judgment and more criticism. It's okay sometimes when we've reached our limit. Even here, you know, not I'm talking a bit out of the retreat, but even here on the retreat, I mean, sometimes it's too much. It's just too much. And we have to go for a long walk, we have to go to sleep, we just have to tune out and take a break, back off. And what that does, in a way, is it actually gives us some resources to continue. It gives us a way to tap back into our strength. Because if we kept pushing, if we kept going, we'd burn out, we'd lose it completely. So we take a break. And when we feel strong again, we come back. We reconnect to the experience. And it's okay. It's all part of the process. It's part of the journey. But the important thing is, can we make it okay? Because that's usually the problem. It's not okay. You know, it's not the way we want it to be. It doesn't look the way we, it should look, you know. And so, so much of the practice really is being watchful of the way that we're relating to our experience. Are we relating to the experience with, with kindness, with gentleness, with, with metta? Or are we relating with more anger and negativity and fear? And this we can pay attention to. It doesn't matter what's actually arising. It doesn't matter if I'm full of rage and full of fear. How am I relating to that in myself? Am I more angry at myself because I'm feeling rage? What we can do is perhaps allow ourselves to feel the rage and say, yeah, right now I've reached my limit. This is the only thing that I can feel and not add anything more on top of it. It's the adding on top of our experience with more of the negativity that reinforces and strengthens those difficult patterns. If we're able to be watchful of that outer layer, that outer layer of how we relate to our experience, we start to weaken the pattern. And that big ball of negativity 
starts shrinking because we're not putting anything more on top of it. We're not giving it food to be strong and to live. And it starts to shrink and it starts to starve and it starts to die. And those forces that had so much power start to lose their power. They don't have the power in consciousness anymore. So many people who have been practicing now for the years say, yeah, it's just that that force of anger just does not take hold. It does not grip my consciousness anymore. Even when I get angry, I'm not angry at myself for getting angry. I'm not gripped in that self-judgment. I'm not gripped in that negativity towards myself. I can allow those conditions to flow, to move within my being. If I feel angry, if I feel jealous, if I feel sad, if I feel grief, it's all right. All that can just move, and I'm not giving myself a hard time anymore. That's the freedom. That's where the freedom begins. Because then those conditions of our inner life, the conditions of our emotions can move. They can be expressed. They can flow. They, they have room. And we're not pushing them away out of fear. And we're not holding on to them out of an, a way of identity and security. But they can just move. And they move and then they go. They come and they go. They come and they go. There's space for all of this to move. But we're not strengthening the forces of anger. We're not strengthening the forces of holding. We're not strengthening the forces of ignorance and delusion. And this is the freedom. The freedom continues as these forces die away. And they do die away. And the the liberated mind is the mind that is free of the arising of anger, greed, and confusion. They no longer arise. And this is the jewel of the teachings. This is the possibility that's held up to all of us. That each of us has that potential within our beings to touch that true essence where we're no longer dominated or controlled by these forces of mind. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.